for the remainder of our time then. Let us return to that chapter we read in Isaiah chapter 3. And we would choose our text this morning from verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 3. And verse 8 reads, For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory. We seek the Lord's blessing as we meditate upon these words and the chapter in context. When we come to the prophets, particularly the Old Testament prophets, we have to remind ourselves that we're not dealing with a narrative here. Isaiah is not telling us about a particular incident that happened that we might find in Kings or Chronicles or Samuel. He is prophesying here and he's using metaphors, he's using pictorial language, he is trying to convey a particular message to the day that he was ministering unto. And being the word of God, we know that God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as it was relevant to the people of Isaiah's day, so because it is God's word and basically, whether we like it or not, mankind has not in any sense improved from the days of around 600 years before the coming of Christ. And therefore, we are inclined to believe that the words that he wrote in his prophecies are applicable unto us today in the 21st century. Now we have read this chapter, chapter 3, and I'm quite sure that we'll be, we will acknowledge that we might find some of the things here difficult. But some things are absolutely crystal clear. I do believe our text is clear. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. In this chapter here we have basically four things. We have in the first section from verses 1 to 9, we have the prophet telling the people the calamities that's going to come upon Judah. The calamities that's going to come upon the people of Judah. Verses 10 and 11, we have here how the Lord will preserve the righteous and how he will deal with the wicked during that time when his judgments will fall upon Judah. He goes on then in verses 12 to 15, he talks about the oppression of the leaders. The leaders were wicked in the days of Isaiah that we're talking about here, and they were oppressing the people, and God notices these things. The high and the mighty might think that they can do as they please with those under them, but God sees all of these things, and God hates when leaders abuse the power and the privilege that has been given unto them. And then 
a large part of the chapter concludes with how the proud women of the day are to be humbled. They go about prancing and their heads are high, their necks are stretched. Why? Because they're so proud of themselves, of their beauty, of their ornaments, of their clothes, of their perfume. All these things and God notices that. And there is something that God hates and it is pride. And therefore we are to take note of this because we're all far too proud. It's a sin that affects every one of us to a greater or a lesser degree. Well, as I said some time ago to you, Isaiah had a long time of prophesying. He prophesied for around 64 years. And part of the time when Isaiah was prophesying, Judah and Jerusalem were living in very prosperous times. This is what he's talking about here, prosperous times. And as for their religion, we maybe don't like to use the word religion today, but as far as their faith was concerned, we might say they were dutiful. They would go to the temple, they would offer their sacrifices, they would do what the Lord had required them to do as far as sacrifices and offerings were concerned, and they were dutiful at the public means of grace. But it does seem that when they left the temple behind, they left their religion behind, and they went back into their old life. They didn't take what we might say in modern words, they didn't take their Christianity with them. When they got home and they took off their Sunday best, what happened? Well, they went back to living basically like heathens, as if God did not exist at all. And they put behind them all that they saw and all that they heard and all that went on in the temple. It didn't seem to influence their lives at all. Now that's a very relevant thing to us all today, friends. It's good to be in the house of God and to be under the means of grace. But let us not be ones who simply go through the motions, who when we come to the house of God and when we leave it, we might have this thought in our minds, well, I've done my duty. That's not the way it's to be. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And friends, if we would grasp what that meant, we would realize that our faith, our religion, our Christianity, whatever you want to call it, is a 24-hour activity. It's a seven-day-a-week Activity. It's not something we take up and put down when we come into the house of God. And if we truly understood the implications of being obedient unto the living God, we would know that it requires the help of the Holy Spirit. We have been brought in to the kingdom of God by a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. If we know anything of that, we will acknowledge. 
that we have been brought into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. He has given us new life so that we have exercised faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that same Holy Spirit must help us as we're in the kingdom of God to live as those who are in the kingdom of God. Let us therefore not be half-hearted. And let us not just devote ourselves to our Savior while we're in the confines of this building or any other building. But let us take the Savior with us as we go to the shops, as we go to the shopping malls, as we go to our work, as we go to our homes, wherever we might find ourselves. If we're truly Christian, then Christ is with us. And they thought that if they could just do the sacrifices, that was sufficient. If they simply put their money in their plate, and if they attended, that was sufficient. Not so, Isaiah was telling them. Their lives had to reflect that they had a living relationship with Jehovah. They were to be reminded they were God's people. God had entered into a covenant with them. God had shown them mercy. God had chosen Israel over and above all the other nations of the world. God could have made a choice of anyone. Instead, he chose Israel, not because they were great, but because he chose them. That's all. And they were likened, their behavior was likened to that of Sodom. He mentions it this, this, in this chapter here, in verse 9, talking about their behavior. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. As we mentioned last week concerning Sodom, when we talk about it or when we hear about Sodom, we're inclined to think of sexual impurity and immorality. But that's not the problem here. Nevertheless, they were proud of their sins. And they made no hiding of them. That's what we're meant to understand. And he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah in the first chapter. And how would, how would they feel to be likened and to be... to be compared with Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened to them? Well, this is what Isaiah is saying to God's covenant people. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is about to happen to you. Because this is what he's telling them in the first, basically the first three chapters of Isaiah. He's not telling them things are rosy. They might think things are rosy. They might be prosperous. They might be religious. They might, in some sense, be devoted to God. But Isaiah's got something else to say to them. What has he got to say? He is telling them that judgment is about to fall upon them. And this may come in various forms. We know from history that the Assyrians would come 
a vast army. They would come and they would cause havoc in Judah and the surrounding area. But they wouldn't be able to penetrate Jerusalem. God would preserve them. Although they would devastate the land round about Jerusalem, yet they would not be able to capture Jerusalem. But many years later, the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem. And this is part of what Isaiah is saying to this people. Many years before it happened, he was telling them the Lord was going to send judgment upon them. And that judgment would be severe. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. That's what he said. Now, why did he say that? Every time a prophet, Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever, it's consistent throughout the Old Testament. Anytime the prophet warns of coming judgment, it is God in mercy warning them that they might amend their ways, that they might turn from their lifestyle, and then the Lord would not send the judgment. That's why he warns, in order that people might assess what has been said, assess their lives, and take the appropriate action. This is always the way with the Lord. I wonder what do we think about when we hear about the judgments of the Lord. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you will know the Lord has intervened in the history of mankind and sent forth his judgments on many occasions. We could think of the flood, that world-wide flood that engulfed the world and destroyed the whole of mankind apart from eight persons. We might think about that. Or we might think about the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. We might think about fire and brimstone. That's how we think God will move and work in times of judgment. But God has many ways to bring about judgment. We might look at these two ways and think that they are spectacular. And they show something of the awesomeness of God. That is true. But God has many arrows in his quiver. He can bring many forms and varieties of judgment upon a people. We know that, for instance, in the book of Amos. And indeed, Amos prophesied during the same time of Isaiah. Not for the whole 64-year period, of course. But when Isaiah was prophesying, so was Amos. And Amos talks about a famine. But it wasn't going to be a famine of food. It wasn't going to be drought. Another famine. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
Amos chapter 8, verse 11. That was a severe judgment. To many people today, that wouldn't matter. But it's a terrible thing, friends, when we don't hear from God. It's a terrible thing when God does not speak to us. And surely we find that today. We find that today because very often you go to a house of God, you go to a Christian service, and you never hear the Word of God. You might attend a service, but you don't hear the Word of God being read, and you don't hear the message being proclaimed. And surely that's what we find ourselves in our own country today. There is a famine, not a famine of food, not a drought, but of heeding the words of the Lord. So God has many ways in which he can judge and chastise a people. I want us to ask ourselves this question. What is happening in our country today? Is it not true there's a great deal of fear in the, in the life of the nation today? It's all around us. You switch on your radios or you switch on your televisions, you listen to the news. And very often when people maybe are, are lonely, they would switch on the television more than they would ordinarily. And there's so much rubbish on the television that maybe they listen to the news more than they would because they hear something. And very often, what do we find in the media? Do we not find fear is being broadcasted wall to wall, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, do we not find that we're told to fear this or to fear that? There's health issues. COVID has not gone away. There may well be a resurgence in it. And what's more, the NHS maybe cannot cope. It cannot cope the way it is at the moment. So we hear the fear goes on, goes on. We have at the moment economic uncertainty. Is that not dominating the news front at the moment? Taxes are going up, we expect. Pensions are under threat, we're told, because of the, the markets and the reaction to the, the former Chancellor's budget. Money markets are panicking. Government is borrowing mind-blowing amounts of money in order to get us out of the problems that we face. Energy prices are going up. Maybe we might have electricity and gas shortages during the peak period of the winter time. Maybe people will have to be cold. Maybe they'll not be able to afford to heat their homes and to cook their meals. Some are talking about either eating or being cold. We could add to this the fear over the the cost of fuel for our motor cars? Do we not have protesters blaming the so-called imminent environmental catastrophe on our dependence upon fossil fuels and they're taking action that we might stop 
using oil and gas. And they're making life difficult for people because of their protests. Then we have, just further afield, we have the, the escalating war in the Ukraine. We don't know where it will end. Many thought it would be long over. It's still with us. It could go on for long enough. It may well develop into something more sinister altogether. Somehow we might be dragged into it. Are we ready? Are we fearful for these things? And behind it all, do we not have the increasing fear of China and North Korea? What will these powers do? Those people who have nuclear weapons and such like, and they have intentions of expanding. Do we not hear about these things continually? Is it not uh, a message of fear, 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 fear this, fear that? It's continually being broadcast and thrust down upon us. And no doubt we will be absorbing some of these things. And maybe as you sit there this morning, you're beginning to say to yourself, Well, preacher, you're only making things worse. I would refute that claim. We go to the Bible. And we go to the Bible in order that we might be able to make sense and to understand what's going on. And that our faith and our hope and our confidence would not be upon man, but upon the living God. Look at verse 22 of the previous chapter. Chapter 2, verse 22 Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? We don't fear the things that other people fear. We live in the same world, of course. But as we look at the same world and as we live in the same world, we can look at the world from a biblical worldview. And friends, the first thing we want to notice in our introduction is that the way that we find ourselves today in Britain, we'll confine ourselves to Britain, the way that we find ourselves today in Britain should be no surprise to us. It should be no surprise whatsoever. We're a godless nation and we've turned our backs upon the living God. And with that, there is always consequences. You will reap what you have sown. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. This is what the Word of God teaches us. Now, friends, we have been in a spiritual decline and in a moral decline for decades. It's not new. I think what is most alarming is the speed of decline, as I've said on another occasion. But... The way we are as a nation, where we are seeking to eradicate Christianity from the, from the life of the nation, if we were prosperous and if everything was going hunky-dory with us, there would be something wrong. And the very fact, friends, that we're in a time of confusion and a time of upheaval should be of no surprise to someone who believes in the word of God. 
And that just brings me to, to realize I have not given you the title for the sermon today. And the title is Confusion Abounds. Confusion Abounds. Well, confusion does not abound for the Christian. We're living in God's world. We're under his care, we're under his tutelage. And friends, when the, the nation rejects Almighty God, when they in effect stick their two fingers up to him and shake their fist at him, they can expect that confusion abounds. And that is exactly what we find today. And in the, the week that has just passed, we see it on the political level. This should not surprise us. In actual fact, the things that are happening in the nation and in the world should strengthen us and should encourage us in our belief in the infallible Word of God. All of this has come about because, as our text says, For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. All of it, friends, has come about because of our national sin, the sins in the church, and our personal sin. There's no way that we can avoid the implications. But look at what the Lord is going to do. This message here, this in chapter 3, is a message of judgment. And here God is going to judge them. How is he going to do it? What's he going to do? Is he going to send fire and brimstone? No. First of all, he says, For behold... In verse 1, for behold. In other words, friends, as he begins to utter the judgment that, that is going to fall upon Jerusalem and Judah, he wants them to recognize, he wants them to know this is the hand of God. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, this is what God is going to do. Man has his agenda, yes, but God has his agenda. And God's agenda will overrule man's agenda. And they might be surprised. Who's going to do this? It is the Lord. It is the righteous Lord. It's the holy Lord. It's the one who is God Almighty. He's the one that is going to do it. Doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff. The whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. As I said earlier, he's prophesying. He's using pictorial language. What's he talking about here? He's talking about famine. A terrible thing to come upon any people. You know, friends, when you're hungry, your televisions and your computers, your smartphones, your cars... They don't seem so valuable. They don't seem so precious then. If you're hungry, you want to be fed. There's no use going to your television screen or your computer. You want food. And what's going to happen? The Lord, 
who is merciful, who is gracious, is going to cause a famine to come upon the land. And bear in mind, at this particular time, they were prosperous. They were reveling in luxury. They could go to their cupboards. They could take anything they want out of their cupboards. They could have a, a meal at any time of the day or night. Not so for much longer because the Lord was going to send a famine upon them. There's going to be hunger. Their bellies are going to be hungry. Is this not a fear that we have today? Is this not something we're hearing? The cost of living? It's rising. I can't afford it. I have to cut back. Is this something the Lord is going to do to us, to this nation, to this people who have abandoned him? Not only a famine of the word of the Lord, but an actual physical famine where we have no food or we don't enjoy the same kind of food that we once had. Their days of plenty are going to end. This could mean not just simply food, but we live in a place, in a time, in a day, in a generation when we have plenty of everything. Yet we are the most unthankful people that ever walked upon this earth. We never give thanks to the living God for what we have. Well, God may well be saying to this nation today, there's going to be a famine. A famine. If you will not amend your ways, there's going to be a famine. And it may well be more than simply food, water, the very basics, essentials that we need. A famine. He goes on. It doesn't stop there. Because the a main part of this chapter is talking about what God will do when he will not raise up leaders. There shall be a leadership crisis that's going to befall Judah and Jerusalem. We find it here in verses 2 to 3. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, and the prophet, and the prudent, and the ancient, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, and the counselor, and the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator. That should be connected with verse 1. What it says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah. Not just give them a famine, take away plenty, but he's going to take away leadership. He's going to take away people who will be able to lead and to guide the nation. Now this would remind us, friends, that to be a leader in the nation is something that God appoints. And it is a difficult job. Very often, we maybe watch our television screens and we listen to the radio and we hear about what the Prime Minister has done or the First Minister or the Chancellor or whatever. And we might say to ourselves, well, that's ridiculous. Well, we don't know what it's like to lead a nation. We don't know what it's like to have responsibilities like they have. We don't know it. But it's God who gives us good leaders. And God is saying to the people of Judah at that time, I'm going to withdraw these people from you. 
There'll be no mighty men. There'll be no men to, to be raised up in order to fight the cause of the, of, the, of the Jews. There'll be no men to fight men of war. There'll be no sound judges. The Lord is going to remove them all. The prophet, there'll be no man there who will declare the word of God. The prophet shall be silent. He shall remove them. And the prudent and the ancient, the old men, the men who have experience. And he goes on to say, as you will find out, that we will be governed by children and by babes and by women. Now that's not a slur against women, but the thing is, the people who will be in charge will be weak and they will be effeminate. He's going to remove the captain of 50. That's the army man and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. These are all men with gifts. Gifts that we need to in order to run a country successfully. The Prime Minister, he or she must be surrounded by advisors, counselors, men who know history, who are educated, who can make wise decisions, who can give good counsel, how to deal with different countries and different situations. There's going to be a leadership crisis. And God is going to cause it. Why? Because of the sinfulness of the nation. They have rejected the ultimate wisdom of God. And therefore God is going to hand them over. And there's going to be a real leadership crisis. Is this applicable to us, to Britain in the 21st century? I'm sure you have been amazed when you see the events that have taken place in recent days. Who would believe it? Well, we should believe it. Because that's what God does. This is what's happening in our day and generation. Who knows what's going to happen come tomorrow? Will we have or will we be looking for another prime minister? I don't know. God does. But we should not be surprised. God is God. He does as he pleases with the armies of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? We are urged to pray for those in authority, as we do. But we should also pray that God would raise up godly leaders. These people that, who were going to be withheld we need them. We need them. This country needs them. And therefore we should make this our prayer. 
My time is gone. But I just want to highlight a couple of things. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. What do we find? Verse 10, Say ye to the righteous, that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. We don't know what upheaval is coming. We'll have to live through it. But if we have Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we are the followers of Christ, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Therefore we are told, here's a promise for us, that it shall be well with him or her. The Lord is able to preserve his people no matter what calamities might come upon the nation as a whole. Lot was delivered in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. David was preserved for ten years as Saul sought his life, yet he was preserved. Elijah was preserved during the time of the drought. The ravens came with food and fed him. Birds of prey, they fed him. Why? Because the Lord directed the ravens and the Lord preserved his prophet. Daniel was preserved. His three colleagues were preserved. They were not hurt when they went into the, the, the fire. The Lord will look after the righteous. He is gracious. This is to encourage us. But the Lord is also righteous. Verse 11. Woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. When the judgment falls, the wicked cannot expect to be preserved. And that's why he brings this message to them. In order that they might amend their ways. We have said it before. And we'll be happy to say it again and again and again. Judgment is a strange work of the Lord. What does that mean? The Lord does not like to send judgment. But he will. And he gives them warning in order that they might heed the warning. And if there are unbelievers in our midst today, you heed the warning. Look at the signs. God is visiting this nation and has done so for a considerable amount of time. Yet there's no repentance. There's no turning back. Men are determined to go on in their sinful ways. Well, ultimately, they'll find out that to their detriment. And we stand here today and we tell you to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. Believe the gospel. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him as Lord and Savior. And as confusion abounds all around, you can be safe in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray together.